Hello, thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. For network or show information, visit byteradio.me or call 843-808-0777. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Randy Kritkowski, and we will be talking about his new book, Without Reservation, Awakening to Native American Spirituality and the Ways of Our Ancestors. We are but a few generations removed from millennia spent living in intimate contact with the natural world and in close commune with ancestral spirits. Who we are and who we think we are is rooted in historical connections with those who came before us in our relationships with the land and the sentient world. When we wander too far from our roots, our ancestors and kin in the natural world call us home, sometimes with gentle whispers and sometimes in loud voices sounding alarms. Through his profound storytelling, Randy Kritkowski shows how ancestral connections and intimate communications with nature are not unique or restricted to those with indigenous cultural roots. Offering a a bridge between cultures, a path that can be followed by Native and non-Native alike, Randy shows that the spiritual awakening can happen anywhere, for anyone, and can open the gateway to deeper understanding. For more information, you can visit Randy's website, which is randykritkowski.com, and it's Randy, and that's K-R-I-T-K-A-U-S-K-Y.com. Okay, with that, welcome to the show, Randy. Thank you for inviting me. This is a wonderful opportunity to engage not only you but listeners over quite a great geographic range, as I understand it. <laughs> yes, yeah, we are, we are, um, we are all around. Yes, and and now um, for probably the last, I've been doing this for about ten years, and probably for the last. Uh, three or four years, the top five countries have been, of course, U.S., Canada, um, um, U.K., Australia, and then sometimes it's Morocco, sometimes it's Egypt. I mean, it's just kind of strange. But anyway, yeah, I'm really thankful to to have that uh, that wide range. But anyway, I'm really looking forward to talking about to, uh, you know your book and um, your experience um, as well. So uh, would you mind sharing with the listeners um, a little bit about your journey to date, you know, and kind of what um, led you, got you up to the point of just before writing without reservation? Surely. Um, My professional life um, has been um, varied. Um, I was a college professor for quite some time, And after that, um, I co-founded an international environmental organization that worked on some of the world's most intractable and, um, I have to say, sometimes deeply concerning problems ranging from climate change to the Chernobyl nuclear accident to desertification in China. And uh, about 20 years ago, um, my wife and I moved to Vermont, which was quite a shift of landscape um, and quite a cultural shift 
because Vermont is you know a very small, very green state and somewhat unique in the United States. And that's where the material in the book um, began to emerge, happen, you know, literally coming out of the forest, if you wish. Well, so, I have to say that um, when I read about you um, sleeping in that um, friend, that a back um, room, the fenced in or the the room that you were in during that uh, Vermont uh, summers. I mean, to me, it was just a, a wonderful image. I mean, to me, that's like camping out every night. It It is. I mean, it started out, um, it's a screened-in porch. Um, it's just a small room off the main house. And for a while, it was something we did for, you know, six weeks. And then we got to like it so much and like the sounds of nature at night. But now we're out there in the early springtime with heavy quilts and hats and mittens and (laughs) (laughs) in the autumn until you know the freezing temperatures drive us in um so we we sleep outside um you know not under the rain but you know pretty much under the skies for six months a year and it is an enormous gift and right now i know with so many people locked down it's probably a very enviable way of being self-isolating it is. It is. So um, I know many, many people would love for to have that um, available to them. And, and so now let's talk um, a little bit about um, the, the book and Native American spirituality. But let's start with the Native American. <laughs> um, sure. in, in your book, you talk about, um, you discuss, you know, the, some of the, um, judgment is what it is to be Native American, so you know, so, and, and the varieties of perspectives of what that is. So, um, if you wouldn't mind sharing with us um, a little bit about the um, kind of what your view of what it is to be Native American, and just maybe some of the the differing views, you know, among tribes, I guess. Good, good. I, I really appreciate the way you phrase the question because very often um, people think of Native Americans or Indians as some kind of you know homogenous society, and of course you know the the very term Indians was uh, a misnomer used by Columbus and those who followed, thinking they had made it to India or the Indies, and really not making much of a distinction. Um, between the different peoples they had encountered, and there were you know, hundreds of different cultures and civilizations. But we, you know, we're still stuck with the name, and I actually comfortably use the name Indian, although my you know, Canadian counterparts, and there may be Canadians listening, um, they use First Nations people, and others are more comfortable with um, indigenous people. But I'm, I'm in, in a way, I'm a, um, a somewhat of a of a unique subset of people within this constellation of Native Americans, and that's where my title came from, because you know I am an off-reservation um, Indian. I, I was not born on a reservation. I have not lived on a reservation. And I actually have spent um, very little time on a reservation and haven't had access you know, to that culture and that support system. So in a way, what my book is about is 
suddenly awakening to things that are in some ways quintessentially Native American, but without that that support system. Um, and as I, I'm very upfront in the book, I think, about the fact that there are times that it was just an, a wondrous encounter on the porch, you know, when koi wolf or firefly or, you know, owls are beckoning in the middle of the night. Um, and I mean, it's hard to describe, but you just know with absolute certainty that that you are being called. I mean, particularly when there's a firefly which doesn't make a sound on the screen, and it's not supposed to be there at that time of the year, and it awakens you with something more like a sound than a light because your eyes are closed. So these kinds of things can be very jolting, and you know, the first thing that goes through the minds of people like me who have grown up in the mainstream is. Okay, am I hallucinating this? You know, am I imagining this, or am I just plain simply going crazy? So, I, I did fortunately have access to elders um, and people who are much more connected with indigenous culture than I. And you know, as my book describes, I, I wrote them email messages saying, "Okay, so last night this happened. You know, is 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 this something real? Is this something familiar?" And they guided me as spirit guides, you know, through this journey. And I liken it to beginning to look through a kaleidoscope for those who are familiar with this children's toy. It's a tumbler with a bunch of pieces of glass in it. And if you twist it, all of a sudden, all these different colorful fragments come into, you know, into focus and they, they form a pattern. You know, they're not chaotic anymore. And that's what began to, to happen for me. And at first I wrote it you know, just for myself. And then I began to write it realizing that when people asked me you know, what I was doing with my time and I described it, they, you know, they would smile you know, and they would say, tell me more, tell me more. And I began to realize that many of my colleagues, um, you know, some of them academics, um, some of them mainstream religious people, were having similar experiences but they felt embarrassed to talk to friends and family about them um, for fear that they would think they're a little crazy um, or mm-hmm. that it didn't yeah. it didn't it wasn't consistent you know with with their religion um, so you know i've I've written with the hope that I'm giving people permission to take the risk of going into unknown territory to opening themselves to the the four-legged, as we call them, or the rooted ones, the plants, the winged ones, um, and be be receptive to the messages that they bring. And in a way, it's it's like becoming um, a, a, a child again. You know, accepting the mysterious as a gift to be explored, not something to be feared. And I hope that the Native American lens that I'm offering, you know, is is useful to some people. But I don't expect everyone to have their spiritual experiences seen through that lens. That's just my story. Yeah, well, you know, and I love the imagery of the lens because, you know, it really um, uh, lends itself to recognizing that, you know, you know, each person sees differently, you know, through their their own eyes. Um, so, so now. You talk about being off res, and there is a. Um, I found it interesting when I was reading that there's that kind of like an on res, off res kind of thing, you know, 
um, that goes that can can go on. I mean, to me, it was it was just like a um, an example of um, one community having quote certain restrictions in order to be part of their community. You know what I mean? It's it's like my community, not your community. Um, can can you talk a little bit about um, you, the the unique um, spot that you're in? You know, having been off res, um, born and raised. Um, can you talk about how that um, there's a, one perspective that could be, you know, I don't want to say looked down upon, but I mean, looked you know differently from on res versus. Um, uh, I mean, it seems like you could play a critical role in kind of bridging the gap between two worlds. You, you, you got it. Um, it is, it is both a challenge and I think an opportunity. And again, for listeners who don't know this, and maybe even people who studied American history and never really heard it, the reservation system, or in Canada, it's the reserve system, was created out of the colonial experience as you know, land was taken away from indigenous people and you know, shrunk and reshrunk and reshrunk. So, you know, my particular tribe, the Potawatomi, once occupied what is the Chicago waterfront and much of Michigan and Wisconsin. And the land got pared down and down and down until they were literally forced at gunpoint to march to um, first Kansas. Um, and they were put on a much smaller reservation. And then they were marched again <laughs> to Oklahoma to live in the desert on another reservation. So um, the, many, many Indians and indigenous people fled. They, they didn't want to be on the death march. They didn't want to be in the white man's you know, postage stamp, fenced-in reserves. Um, and some of them went to Canada. Um, what they ended up, some of them on you know reservations or reserves up there, but more and more people, um, as time went on, became like myself, um, you know, descendants of a Canadian fur trapper who's French, and an Indian woman, and through multiple generations of intermarriage, we became by what is called blood quantum, which is you know a percentage of Indian blood, less and less you know, pure blood Indian. I, I really cringe, you know, at, at these terms. <laughs> um, but yeah. that, that, that is the term the U.S. government used, you know, to qualify people. And in Canada to this day, um, the Canadian government determines who is um, indigenous and who is not based on blood quantum pretty much, except for the Metis people. Um, and, and in the United States, each tribe is allowed to write its own rules. And my branch of the Potawatomi wrote the rules such that if you had a documented, uninterrupted ancestral paper trail to someone who was enrolled as of a certain date in the tribe, then you're still legally an Indian. So I have a little card. And the reason is that my four times great-grandfather was the first person to register in this particular citizen's Potawatomi nation, which now resides in Oklahoma. But you're you're absolutely right. Um, it is it is not often openly spoken about. But you know there there is sometimes tension between people who have grown up on the reservation, people who have more Indian blood than I, 
and people like me who, as I say in the, literally the first paragraph of my book, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall, I look in the mirror, and what do I see looking back at me? You know, this person who looks Lithuanian and not Native American. <laughs> so it's, 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 it's a real challenge. But I hope that what my book can argue, both to people in the mainstream and to my relatives who are on the reservation, is that as Elizabeth Warren found out when she stepped into a hornet's nest claiming ancestry of <laughs> Cherokees, you know, it's it's right. not it's not about your blood quantum, it's not about your DNA, it's about your spirit. Um and yeah. that's what ultimately matters. Yeah, you know, that's I was that was one of my thoughts, of course, you know, that uh, that controversy, the Elizabeth Warren controversy was just so um but you know, to the forefront. You know, just that, the, just the whole idea of identif- self-identification, identification. You know, group identification, and um, and yeah, it, one of the things that um, I think, well, when you're talking about awakening in the book, you know, and you kind of mentioned it a couple times earlier, is that you know you don't have to have the um, you know indigenous um uh blood or this don't have to be indigenous in order to be to have the, the awakening experiences correct C- correct the, the the question and i I'm, i still wrestle with it i mean more than once a day is to what degree was my experience you know unique to me because i have native american ancestry and my ancestors are native american and to what extent is it universal and that's going to be the fun of talking you know to you and other people um who look at native americans with curiosity and intrigue and high expectations and getting a deeper understanding of how comfortable are people cozying up to native american spirituality and when do they view it as something that's so mystified and romanticized that you know it's inaccessible yeah. Well, I think one of the um one of the strongest draws to at least for me, let me just say, for me one of the strongest draws to you know the, the Native American philosophy or perspective or the lens um is the um coexistence um mutually beneficial coexistence with nature. You know, and and it seems that um, uh, that that uh, there's just so much you know, so much knowledge in that. So, and and I know in, in your book you do talk about you know working with or being with nature. Can you talk a little bit about um, how you know nature you know um, fits into you know the idea of of not only the spirituality, but just, you know, something that we all encounter every day that we can maybe utilize more effectively for us. Sure. I'll give you an anecdote, a tale in a moment, um, just to build on your earlier comment. Um, You know, my my ancestors lived, you know, uninterrupted for millennia, and, you know, the news every week seems to be extending that time frame, you know, back and back in, in this part of the world to maybe now 30,000 years ago we came here 
and we were just absolutely immersed in in the world of nature and we 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 co-evolved with it not just our culture but our consciousness and as as we're learning from modern psychology and biological research for example you know kids who grow up in places like you know the middle east and war torn countries stress is handed down from generation to generation and i i think um a comfort with nature and an openness to nature may also you know be to some degree you know, handed down from generation to generation. So in that sense, maybe people of Native American ancestry have um, a, a slight advantage in, in, in the sense of, if you'll excuse the term, an ancestral memory. I often use the monarch butterflies in my book as an example. You know, they, they leave home um, and fly, and five generations later, you know, their descendants come back to the exact same place. And they don't have GPS systems. They don't have maps. They, they they know how to find their way home. Somehow it's it's encoded in their DNA and RNA. And I I think there's an element of that in my experience. That said, um, the beauty of having decided to write this book was telling people anecdotes like what I can tell you in a moment, and having them say, "Oh, I had that experience too." Really? Wow, that's wonderful. And and they'll say it in that voice. They'll almost whisper because it's not part of their cultural frame. Um, so the, the one of the examples you know I I use in the book is you know the visitations of um, of animals. We have koi wolves in this part of the the country. Um, there are hybrids of wolves that came out of Canada and coyotes that came from the Southwest. And when we first moved to this piece of land, they, they welcomed us. We lived in a little cabin before we built our house, and we would hear them howling at night. They sound like wolves as much or more than coyotes. And you know, at first it was just, oh, what, what wonderful, charming sounds. But one night when we were watching a film on Native Americans and their fate, um, you know, I became really quite stricken because it was talking about topics dear to my grandfather's time in Indian schools, which were horrific. And we basically had to take a break. We came downstairs, sat down to play some cards and get away from the, the stress. And all of a sudden, you know, we heard the howls. And it was winter and the place was buttoned up, but it felt like they were you know, circling the house. And the next morning, you know, I went out, and sure enough, there were, you know, quite wolf tracks all around the house, and they don't usually do that. So that night, when I went to sleep, you know, I kept mulling over, what does this mean? Is it like the, you know, the the hawk and, and the owl that bring messages? And then I woke up and I realized, yeah, I get it. You know, koi wolf is a hybrid. You know, it's not a pure blood quantum wolf. It's not a pure blood quantum coyote, it's one of the most adaptable creatures in the Northeast right now. They're turning up in New York City, and it's just like me. I'm a hybrid. You know, I'm not less because I'm a hybrid. I'm stronger because I'm a hybrid. So you know, our, our, our natural kin can bring us these lessons, these messages, if we know how to listen, if we're patient enough to listen to what they have to tell us. Yeah, that's the that's the key is is um, being patient and quiet. <laughs> um, 
Matter of fact, I was, um, I, I live in a, a gated community in this morning. I, I my, my little daily Zen moment is morning walks and, you know, I'm, I do nature photography anyway this morning. I, I was um, walking, looked at the pond across the way, there's beautiful water lilies there. I mean, I just, I can't not take a picture every day. Um, but um, I also happened to notice that, you know, kind of in the grass right nearby, very hidden, was an alligator. And it was like, you know, just sitting there quietly. And I thought, hmm. So anyway, I just sat there and, and um, watched it, you know, to see kind of um, what it would do. But anyway, it, it didn't do anything. It didn't move or anything. But what was interesting is when I decided to move, it was like my mind was completely silenced, <laughs> you know, you know, just kind of waiting to see. And it was just a, it was an odd experience that, that um, you know, the end effect was having a silenced mind. But it was kind of having that little um, little bit of nature there to, to provide the, the source for that. Yes. The, the, the beautiful moments are when you're looking at an, a, a, one of our natural kin and you suddenly have this feeling that their consciousness is looking back through their eyes and engaging yours. And you may not know what's going on, but you just have this feeling of intimate contact. It's not like bird watching. You know, it's experiencing mm-hmm. something shared. Um, and that's that's where I think the uh, awakening begins. Yeah, um, let's. Gosh, we're, we're about halfway through the show. Let me just take a, a quick break, um, and then um, when we come back, I want I want to talk a little bit about awakening. You know, it's kind of exactly you know what it is. What are some kinds of experience? How the listener would know whether they are awakened or in the process of or, or ready to start. <laughs> okay. Thank you, sure. Okay. okay, everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back after this very brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us and hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,400 shows we have had over the past nine years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, photography, a wellness store, and self-publishing assistance. Our show is a free podcast on iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on many social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms at the top of our homepage. Our website, byteradio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guests. And now back to the show. 
Okay, everyone. Thank you for staying with us again today. My special guest is Randy Kritkowski, and we're talking about his new book, Without Reservation, Awakening to Native American Spirituality and the Ways of Our Ancestors. Again, you can find out more by visiting Randy's webpage, which is randykritkowski.com. Um, and with that, we're back, Randy. Hello. Hello. Okay. So um, I want to talk a little bit about awakening, you know, um, and maybe you can tell us um, kind of, uh, in your book you gave us a really good, you know, description of it in, in relation to the tribe, you know, that you belong to. But you know, I just want the listeners to get an idea of what, what it is, whether whether or not we have it or had it or want to have it. Well, clearly, um, many people are just born with a gift of connectedness to things spiritual and to the natural world. I've I've seen it in people of all ages, and we very often see it in young children. They just intuitively are born with it and get it. I think we drum it out of them. For for people like me, you know, who've had both the benefit and the damage, um, if you wish, of a university education where we're taught, you know, if you can't measure it, um, put it in a test tube and you know, and and monitor it, it, it ain't real. It's it's much more of a challenge to sort of take down that gating and those barriers and and be willing to entertain the possibility that, you know, something that is um, not dissectable and measurable and quantifiable is real. So very early in my writing um, and early in my book, you know, I talk about different modes and ways of knowing. And I remember having a conversation with a friend who's a, a deacon in the Catholic Church. He had just told me about a Native American who had become a saint, um, her name is Kateri Tekakwitha. She has a shrine across the river from the house that we used to be able to visit in Canada before COVID. And you know, I said, "Well, Ed, you know, how 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 do you know someone you know is really a saint? You know that they're not um, you know putting people on that they weren't misunderstood. It was 300 years ago." And he explained, you know, this rigorous process. It's it's literally a trial. Oops, wait a minute, Church. we're kind of losing you there for a second. I'm sorry, Randy. Hold on. Oh, okay, there we go. Sorry. We, okay. had, we kind of had lost it. I had at least lost it there for a second. Sorry, I may have dropped the phone a little on my... So anyway, I was <laughs> I was discussing with this, this friend who's a deacon about, you know, how, the, how Catholics view people who claim to have spiritual experiences, and and they view it with enormous skepticism. And that's when I learned that it was okay for me to simultaneously embrace my rationality and skepticism and you know the immediacy of an experience that I knew was real and 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 let them um you know st- struggle with and inform and interrogate if you wish one another that the the experience was not diminished with that creative tension you know one elucidated the other and that's where I still am in my awakening you know I Every day something happens, and my immediate response is, "Okay, you know, is this the time that I'm imagining it, <laughs> or is this the time that it's still real?" Yeah. Well, you know, that's it's really that's a really important 
kind of point to get across is is that um that the the two can coexist you know and and that if not one for you know the other i mean it's kind of like the the idea of you know if you didn't know i mean darkness and light you know i mean it's it's one of those things that um uh just it, it seems that's a process of awakening or the discovery or those those moments of connectedness it's like they um because they're so unique in maybe out of you know the the belief system that you would normally have because of that they become heightened you know the awareness is heightened i think you know and then that to me it's like if if you want proof of you know of uh the the greater spiritual element of life then um you know those are little just um inklings into it well a lot of my fellow tribe members um are both catholics and native americans and they embrace both their native american spirituality and their catholicism and a lot of historians look at this and say oh that's because you know some missionary in the 17th century you know beat beat their native religion out of them um and you know they they lost it and as i worked through writing my book and looked at people like you know the great medicine man black elk i began to realize that when they claimed that they were both you know spiritual native americans and profoundly catholic that it it was not a contradiction because in native american logic it's okay to be two things at the same time and the example i came across was really lovely i'll never forget it when i first read it was a native american who said okay aristotle says a rose is a rose is a rose it can't be a rose and not a rose at the same time that's a contradiction and your english teacher you know makes notes in your paper in big red ink if you contradict yourself but for a native american you know a boy is not a boy is not a boy sometimes a boy is a bear sometimes a boy is a spirit shares it with the bear and sometimes the bear is a spirit that shares it with the boy sometimes they're boy bear they're in between western logic says can't be can't be but i think you know we live very very sterile lives when we don't embrace what our tensions and we reject them as contradictions. I mean, life is rich when there's tension. You know, that's 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 where the the discovery is on that <laughs> frontier. Yeah, yeah, it it does. I mean, and it it can be a motivator. <laughs> you know, definitely um, bringing things into into being. Um, now, one of the Native American views that you talk about in your book that I would kind of like to maybe if you could just touch a little bit on is the idea of reciprocity. And um, in, in your book, you indicate that it kind of had um, some impact on, on you and, and I, the idea of sustainability. Could you, would you mind talking a little bit about that? Because I, I, you know, I think that's one thing that uh, that's just one topic I would like to get out there. Thank you. Thank you so much. A very astute observation on your part. Um, I, I don't want to make invidious comparisons, but it's hard not to in this case. So I mean, mainstream culture um, in much of the Western world, and certainly in the United States at this time in our history, has become a 
you know, take me, grab, you know, whatever I'm entitled to, and then more kind of culture. And then, you know, we're jaded because even though we get everything that we can grab, you know, it doesn't feel like enough. Um, it's a it's a, it's a very dead end cultural attitude for Native Americans. Um, you know, the natural world and the social system of our community was a gift, and we are charged with being stewards of it, preserving it, you know, passing it on to future generations, and protecting it because it has value in its own right. That's beyond a conservation ethic of saying, don't overfish because we need to fish in the future. It's say, but think about the fish as well. So reciprocity is basically the notion that Mother Earth and all of these wonderful creatures were 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 put here along with us to take care of one another and as long as we take care of one another we will all thrive and from the very beginning indigenous cultures i think of every variety around the world and this is i think nearly universal um you know there is this this ethic of you shall take care of the environment around you. And if you don't, you will perish. And my, certainly that lesson is, is coming home you know, to haunt us now because we've, we've not acted and engaged um, with the natural world in a, a reciprocal relationship. That said, I do want to be careful not to lead listeners down the path that I also find equally disturbing right now, which is the notion that Mother Nature is punishing us because we haven't practiced reciprocity and we're doomed and we're all going to go extinct. I don't believe that. I don't think Mother Nature is punitive. You know, The harm we're suffering is our own creation. It's not Mother Nature's wrath. And so the the way forward is 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 to heal with mother nature to look for examples of nature healing itself and the calls that we get every day from the plants and the winged ones and the rooted ones you know just work with us respect us work with the microbes in the soil and the planet will will begin to heal you know? yeah yeah it's it's um it is just so important, and you know, while you were you know talking about that, um, one of my one of my favorite guests, gosh, it was probably now eight years ago, seven years ago. Her name was Polly Higgins. She's um, passed on, I think, last year or the year before. But anyway, she was a an English barrister um, who was like arguing in front of the Hague for new laws called, you know, ecocide. You know, making ecocide the, the, the destruction of the planet as a punishable crime um, to kind of elevate it to that point of, of recognition. And that, anyway, she just. Um, you know her passion. You know now from from the, the the legal standpoint. You know the barrister aspect. You know kind of um, codifying some of these things that we should really be doing naturally. You know that we shouldn't have to. You know have a law to say. You know listen, this is important. But um, I think in the sometimes you know in the structure we have to work with the structures that we have and, and utilizing all those tools. And that would I would think even be that man-made, societal, made-up, you know, kind of um, framework that, that we have. What, what's, your, what's your thought on that? 
Well, it's interesting that you would raise this notion of ecocide, which implies the notion that nature has rights, because there is a, a growing global movement, and it's um, getting attention in law schools. There are courses on it now called you know, the rights of nature. And there are countries um, and, and people who have succeeded in codifying the personhood of natural phenomena. So um, in New Zealand, the, the Maori succeeded in getting legal status as personhood for a river, which means that someone can sue in court for the protection of that river as if it were a person. And, you know, some of my more skeptical, rational um, colleagues will say, well, you know, that's ridiculous. How can a how can a river be a person? And my my immediate response is, wait a minute, didn't the Supreme Court give corporations personhood? You know, <laughs> why, 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 why can't rivers and mountains and living beings have personhood? I think they're a little closer to it. Exactly. Uh, that was good. I have to remember that when in case that happens, I come across that. But um, yeah, so I mean, there is, you know. But you know, again, I think it goes back to the idea that. Um, Everything has a living energy. Yes. Um, and um, so, boy, um, one one of the topics I wanted to cover um, is you know we, we kind of mentioned a couple of times you know in time of COVID um, that uh, you know things we are, are different and then you know this time really has highlighted our impact on nature just by having, you know, clear canals in Venice and, you know, in open, clean air in, in Tokyo or in India. Um, so, I mean, it was an obvious kind of, you know, nature saying, you know, this is, you know, if you, do, if you don't do this, this is what you get. Um, but, um, we, and in your book you have, um, I believe it's Chapter 17 of your book, you have um, a section called Microbes and Black Swans. So, you know, and the idea of the microbes and what we have now with, with the coronavirus, would you mind kind of talking a little bit um, about, you know, what maybe the Native American perspective of this time would be? Mm. Well, um, for those who've studied Native American history, one of the one of the more disturbing facts, which you know, gets buried in the Hollywood movies, is that um, when it comes to epidemics, no no people have experienced them quite the way the indigenous people did of the entire Western Hemisphere. You know, within within decades of the first encounter with the Europeans. You know, 60, 70% of the entire population was killed by waves of measles and smallpox, and they're still, you know, learning from DNA analysis the various other diseases. And before it was done, you know, before the 19th century, these waves of epidemics killed off 90% of the population. Um, it wasn't the conquistadores in their, you know, wonderful superior military technology and their, you know, bright, shiny helmets that did the job of reducing the population it was you know the pandemics um so we're 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 very familiar with um you know the the havoc that nature can you know inflict on on humans and it's part of the native american perspective which is sometimes we are the predator and we like to think 
you know, that we're in control of each and every aspect of our society, including nature. And then along comes something like COVID. And as I said in the chapter you you mentioned, you know, this tiny brainless little creature that we have to look at under an electron microscope to find is outwitting our best scientists. Um, you know, we, we, we need to learn one of the Native American virtues, which is humility. We have to respect, you know, all, all, all forms of life. And that's, that's what COVID taught me. And as you know from looking at that chapter, you know, the, the day I read about the news of COVID is the day I got my diagnosis of Lyme disease here in New England. And it was a personal reminder, one of those um, coincidences, you know, that, um, you know, I felt like the woods was sending me a message and reminding me of what I'm writing, but I, you know, hadn't incorporated in my own thinking and full appreciation. I, I am now much more humble toward <laughs> the world of the microbes. <laughs> yeah, that's good. And it is for, for everyone, you know, the idea of, you know, the, the unseen, um, and, and just the, um, various components about you know the uh, how easily it can be um, you know, transmitted um, you know as far as the uh, being asymptomatic. I mean, there's so many various facets to this that make um, that increase that um, unknown factor. You know, as far as um, control, because I mean, it's you know in, in some areas you can. You, you can some ways you can minimize you know control, but in essence, you know it's it has control, you know, and we just kind of have to, like you say, respect that and 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 treat it accordingly. And right now, you know, I don't think we're doing such a good job, but hopefully we can um, do better. But but it, but it, it teaches us something, um, and then I think a lot of people have had some pretty intense periods of reflection during this time that they. Um, would not have otherwise. So, well, it's astounding for most people to understand, you know, that a large part of the DNA that we carry actually is um, is from viruses, not millennia, but millions of years ago that invaded the bodies of our proto-hominid, you know, ancestors. And we talk about being three percent, you know, Neanderthal, but we're actually about six or seven percent viral. Um, and if it weren't for the DNA of the viruses, we couldn't reproduce. You know, the fact that they short-circuit our um, immune system makes it possible for a woman to carry around this large amount of foreign protein in her body and not reject it. You know, um, viral DNA taught our body how to, to live with foreign protein. So once again, you know, we we need to be respectful and humble before nature and figure out how to work to work with. Not I'm saying put out the welcome mat for the COVID, but um, to understand how it works, respect how it works, treat it with the respect that it's due, um, and understand that you know after COVID is going to come something else and something else and we better get used to sharing the planet with all life forms they aren't going away and they've been here longer than we have and they cannot smart us <laughs> really exactly uh, yeah doing a good job um one question that i um 
don't get to ask very often is, is that um, there is a, a phrase called culture appropriation, <laughs> mm. the idea of picking, taking, you know, picking up different um, cultural um, aspects or um, right, or you know, rights or. or processes or beliefs, um, you know, appropriating them, you know, as one's own. Um, you know, I think from what, you know, I, I've read about the book, what, you know, my belief is is, is in that there's really kind of like a, a Native American spirit, the spirit of, you know, that is in line with, many, that incorporates many of the, um, the beliefs and perspectives of, of Native Americans, and that um, that particular spirit can be um, in anyone, you know. And now, like you said, maybe genetically, you and other Andres, you know, Native Americans, would have some genetic, you know, um, uh, booster <laughs> for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is. Um, What's your feeling about, you know, people who want to incorporate some Native American um, beliefs or or rites or rituals or, you know, that kind of thing into their daily activity? Do you feel like it's cultural appropriation? It's a wonderful question. I'm really glad um, to have a chance to explain that, you know, to you and and to your listeners. Um, It's a incredibly sensitive topic for Native Americans. And really what it boils down to is the you know, totally insensitive use of the outward trappings of something Native American without taking into consideration the, the spiritual dimension. So, for example, um, you know, um, dressing up like a bunch of Indians um, and, you know, dancing like a bunch of Indians and holding a powwow and saying, this is an authentic Native American powwow. It's another thing for kids to do that and say, we're playing at being Native Americans because the kids, you know, they're aware that they're playing at it. But when you take someone else's cultural forms, again, you know, these sort of outward manifestations of them, and you take them as your own and then very often you know charge a fee for people you know to see you put on the performance um that's that's considered you know cultural appropriation and of course it's very much in the news right now because of you know sports teams and products putting indians on the label um and kind of trading on the aura um and respect that native americans you know had um, so one can overreact to this accusation of cultural appropriation and say, ooh, I can't do that. Um, you know, I, I, I can't eat wild rice and make Native American dishes, um, and maybe I shouldn't go and attend the powwow because I'm not really a Native American. No, it all comes down to respect, and I think the, the, the simplest answer to your question is, if in doubt consult with someone who's a Native American and ask, how might I do this in a way that is respectful? Um, how can I yeah. bring attention to what you do and honor it without you know, t- 
taking it away and turning it into something else. It all comes down to really understanding what it is you're dealing with, first of all. So you you don't make a Hollywood movie and have a Sicilian actor, you know, who's, you know, from you know, the the Mediterranean who has dark skin playing in the, an, an Indian. That's cultural appropriation. And that's what happened for decades. You know, all those famous movies with all those famous Indians oh, yeah. were Italian actors. That was cultural appropriation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see where that, that would go and be going a little bit too far. Well, you know, it's it's just one of those things, like you say, it's you know in the news and and it's topical. And and I think, you know, it, it's not everyone has you know um, a friend who is a Native American that they can go up and ask. So I, you know, I'm happy to be able to have that opportunity today. You know, to have you um, clarify that, and, and and I can understand that it really just gets down to respect, respect of. Um, of the tradition of uh, um, of what it is that you're trying to do, and, and, and if you're doing it in a respectful and honored way, then I can say it would just be um, um, just a booster, you know, to to recognizing the the importance and, and uh, the validity of of that. So. Um, my goodness! Now, right before we close, um, I do want to mention your website, ecologia.org. Um, can you tell us a little bit? By the way, for listeners, it's, it's the ecologists linked for organizing grassroots initiatives and action. So, ecologia.org. So, tell tell us about that. Well, um, it's 30 years ago now that um, I co-founded that organization. And it was another one of those serendipitous things where we took a trip to the, what was then the Soviet Union and found out people were suffering you know, from exposure to nuclear radiation and whatnot. And we just began you know, giving them Geiger counters and fax machines and books on nuclear waste and such things. So um, it, it grew from an out-of-pocket on our credit card kind of personal charitable effort to uh, at one point, you know, an international organization that had 25 people working around the world on, on various problems, and it actually laid the foundations for asking the questions that I think my book answers, which is, how do we save the planet? And what I what I concluded from the experience of operating Ecologia is that. We need science, we need reason, we need good policies, but if it's not backed by a kind of spiritual conviction and respect for Mother Nature, it isn't enough. That's why arguing science isn't addressing climate change. Just talking about the numbers of parts per million of CO2 doesn't get us there. We've got to get people to embrace Mother Nature and work with her, and then we'll get to where we need to get. So. That's the connection between ecologia yeah. and the book. Yeah, yeah, we definitely have to have that uh, that passion and conviction. I mean, that, you know, because um, the problems are immense and are going to take, you know, um, uh, it's going to take a lot of cooperative effort. And um, hopefully, we can pull it together. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll be, you know, might be one of those cases where. You know, nature nature gives us um, a little bit more of a two by four, you know, kind of experience. Um, but hopefully, we'll learn um, from that. So, any, any final words, Randy, for for the listeners? 
just that maybe the greatest lesson Native Americans have to teach is resilience, even in midst of you know the most cataclysmic pandemics, the most cataclysmic changes in lifestyle. Um, you know, the, the human spirit has this way of sometimes muddling and not very beautifully through, but I, I don't think we're going to go extinct. I don't think we're a hopeless venture. Um, it, it's it's a matter of how soon and how quickly we can listen to our, our own, you know, inner spirits and, and get on the right path. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Randy. I really enjoyed our, our chat, and I enjoyed reading your book. And, um, yeah, so thank you very much. Oh, as we say, miigwech. Thank you. You're very welcome again, everyone. Today, my very special guest has been Randy Kritkowski, and we've been talking about his new book, Without Reservation, Awakening to Native American Spirituality and the Ways of Our Ancestors. Again, you can find out more by visiting Randy's website, which is randykritkowski.com, and his book is available from Amazon and other fine book outlets. So everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show, and until we meet again... Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. To follow our show, visit our homepage at byteradio.me and select the platform you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.